okay. So at the moment, I'm um, I'm asking myself, can I be satisfied when uh, the situation isn't uh, very uh, satisfactory? And um, but you've already judged the situation unsatisfactory. Yeah, usually when I when I say that to myself, it's because I don't feel uh, that uh, that great. So I know I'm at the moment uh, maybe uh, a bit dissatisfied. So I try to look at it from a neutral standpoint, just as uh, sensations and uh, without judging them, and um, and just go for the satisfaction in this moment without uh, judging it. And usually I can get a you know a little a subtle satisfaction. Then I just focus on on this satisfaction and you know kind of create a satisfaction feedback loop <laughs> where I look at this satisfaction and very little satisfaction and it uh, gives me more satisfaction and uh, it goes like this. Um, yes, that's that's true. That's something that most people don't understand that when we, uh, let us say, practice being satisfied, uh, there's only a little satisfaction because there's already so much dissatisfaction as a habit. But as we continue to practice satisfaction, it begins to be, uh, let us say, uh, a new surface or uh, a new paint job on an old house. Uh, and so we keep layering down another layer of just a little bit of satisfaction and another layer of just little satisfaction. And over time, one breath at a time of satisfaction, we begin to gain distance from that dissatisfaction because we keep layering more satisfaction on top. Now, a way that we can think of it is, is that that old dissatisfaction is, in fact, it's old and it's in the past. And that um, when we are, uh, let us say, in the habit of dissatisfaction, then our past is full of dissatisfaction. So we come up with a, uh, a new situation in the present moment. What happens is, is that we sort of let that old dissatisfaction rub off on whatever it is. Mm. But if we begin to practice new satisfaction and continue, then whatever new thing that arises, when we try to make sense out of it, now we're more likely to pull out satisfaction rather than the older dissatisfaction. Okay. okay. Now, another way of also thinking about it is, is that once we are layering satisfaction over the old satisfaction or the old dissatisfaction, if we damage it, if something heavy comes in, a great big stone comes and plops on it, then this dissatisfaction and the satisfaction will get mixed together and become more dissatisfaction. There's a lot of different analogies for this, and one of them that I used before is imagine that all of the past, all of the old stuff, all of that dissatisfaction is like a sewer. And delicious food that comes in the present moment, we dip it in the sewer before we eat it. Okay. But if we stop dipping the sewage uh, in onto the food or mixing the sewage with the food that we're eating and are only eating good food, then that's the same thing as saying that we're now putting a new layer of good food on top of the old sewage rather than just throwing the good food into the sewer. We layer it on. And so this is like the new thing. So if we are practicing Anapanasati and practicing feeling satisfied, then satisfaction will be more, let us say, um, available to us at the ordinary, what you would call drop of a hat. Or when something happens, 
and we process it. We process it with new information rather than old. Mm. Okay. That uh, you can think of that the past as distance and time. But in fact, uh, uh, new modern physics has, uh, with Einstein has shown the, uh, the relationship between time and distance. And so whenever we're measuring speed or whenever we're measuring time or distance, we're, we almost always have to put in the inverse square law. In other words, um, in uh, Newton's theory uh, or formula for gravity, that the weight of one object, not sorry, the mass of one object and the mass of the other object uh, combine with each other in a multiplying factor, but the distance between them, that, uh, uh, that gravitational pull between them lessens, but not proportionally, but uh, in a square. This is why we say E equals MC square is because the speed of light is square because of the, the, the speed that it's a, it's a distance. And so um, this inverse square law is really, really valuable for us to recognize that our own past recedes very quickly. Mm. Or our actions, the results of our actions recede very quickly at an inverse square law rather than just merely proportional. Okay, so twice the time means that it only now has a quarter of the weight and three times the time and now it's only down to one ninth of the weight. And here's part of the reason why that can be seen with the Dhamma is because any time a moment happens, a whole lot of cause and effect events and conditionalities are there. So if we are measuring one of them and then that gets into the past, then we can't say that that old past item is affecting the present moment because there's so much happened in between. One of the examples of that is, is that there are those who say that it was the Hitler and the Holocaust that caused Israel to come into being. But there were too many years from 1945 to 1948. Too much happened for you to say that Hitler and the Auschwitz was the direct cause of the nation of Israel being created. And in fact, the British were involved with that quite a lot, too. Right. And so this is a way of understanding things that as things get old, their impact or their power recedes at an inverse square law. So that's good for us. <laughs> and that's a good point. Now, what that actually means is, is that if you're now doing a whole lot of good, wholesome thinking, then the old unwholesome thinking of the past will recede. Mm -hmm. And so uh, our new information uh, becomes more important than old information. Okay, this is exactly what happens when we take a look, a second look at something. When we look at it the first time and we make an observation and we put that with our own past and all of that and we come up with a conclusion about that. But now we're looking at it again and looking at it again and looking at it again and bringing in new information. That old result loses its value very quickly. Mm -hmm. Okay, so two new observations are not just twice as good as one old observation, but it's four times better. And three new observations are better than uh, an old observation by a quality of nine. In other words, three new observations will then give you enough information to say that old one <laughs> is way down there now. It's not just one of a group. It's not 25%. It's more like 10%. Yeah. Okay. And so when you understand it that, that way, that's actually something to use as our advantage. And we're not talking about merely the way that the mind works. We're talking about the way reality works. Reality operates like this. 
And this we could use to our advantage because that means that we're having new wholesome thoughts, one new wholesome thought and another new wholesome thought and another new wholesome thought will actually come in and begin to replace all of those years and all of those 10,000 of unwholesome thoughts lose their weight. But if we're in the present moment, keep adding new unwholesome thoughts and new unwholesome thoughts, then those are the ones that have weight. That's quite remarkable to recognize that uh, because a lot of people, especially in Christianity and Buddhism, they don't understand that delayed factor. And so uh, the idea that if you commit a great big crime when you're a young man, and then you repent and you're a really good guy after that, never mind the common machine is still going to harm you or pay you back for that one great big thing that you did. Right? But now we recognize, wait a minute, those great big things that we did in the past, they lose their weight, they lose their value. And so, um, some people, in fact, talk about Kami in the sense of a comic bank account. And that if I do something horrible, then I've got a, like a really negative loan that's in a bank. Well, what they don't realize is this inverse square law. So even if they did something horrible now, and then that still feels really horrible one year from now, two years from now, it's not nearly as horrible. And three years from now, it's almost nothing anymore. But if we bring that back into the mind and dwell on it, then we're bringing it back again and making it new again. And that's what has the weight to it. So this is the reason why the Buddha says is the past is dead. Leave the past alone. Let's not dig up the past. Let's live now. Yeah, that way we don't uh, reinforce the, the power of, uh, of the old. Because that way we don't reinforce the power of the old past and we can just live in the present moment any way that we choose to feel mm -hmm. because we're intentionally now choosing to feel satisfied here we go back into the idea of the satisfaction with new satisfactions then that helps rot away and distance ourselves from old satisfactions mm -hmm. But it's not merely just a paint job on an old house. That gives an idea that, yeah, it's, it looks better. At least the house looks better. But yeah. it's still an old house. <laughs> All right. But we have to think of it a little bit differently in that sense. Is no, this new paint job actually does improve the house. Mm, it, matter, it matters uh, more than I think, than it would have mm -hmm. uh, before. Right. That it, that if you put enough paint that the paint will absorb into the wood and make the wood more stronger where it had become weak because it had rotten. Now that rotten area is covered in with new paint. And so the actually the old house does get stronger by giving it a paint job. It's not merely just a, um, uh, a facade. It, that facade actually does add value to the house, just like our new wholesome thoughts eventually layer over and uh, ameliorate almost to the point of negating the old past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's marvelous. I mean, that what a nice thing for reality to do for us is that inverse yeah. square law. That's good. <laughs> uh -huh. and, uh, I used to um, like um, in the um, kind of um, apply to um, to how I impact my uh, environment too because when I was uh, feeling satisfied I noticed I don't um, interact with people the same way and um, I get different reactions and also I feel a lot less, less uh, self-conscious and stuff like this so um, I guess in that way too in, in the uh, in the impact in the world I guess it also applies, uh, this rule also applies, right? Absolutely, that's true. That <laughs> if someone does something that you don't like, mm 
and you respond to them in the next new moment with disliking. Now that's the new thing. And now your disliking is more powerful and bigger than their original not liking. But if they come to you with disliking and you already have your mind straightened out together so that when they throw their disliking at you, you miss it. It misses you and you stay in your liking. Now you can add that liking that you already have on to the newness of the dialogue between you. And that will also then cover up their old anger or mollify it. And so this is a way of thinking is, is that um, wisdom, truth, and joy will override anger, frustration, lies, and disappointments. It does, but people will cling to that stuff. And so, um, like, there's two examples of that. One would be when someone is miserable and they want the other people around them to be miserable with them. So they will tell their misery and yeah. the other person is supposed to buy that misery and then they can come and have a pity party together. Mm -hmm. The other example is if that is someone is angry, let us say they're angry at an institution like a bank, then they want to go tell that story to other people in order to get them also angry at that bank. Yeah, they want support, right? Oh. Mm -hmm. Or when somebody is angry at Putin, they want to go tell other people about Putin because they want their friends to be angry too. Mm -hmm. All right. That means that we're actually wanting to get other people to verify and justify our bad feelings mm -hmm. or our bad behavior. In other words, if, if there is something suspicious about our behavior, we want to go find someone who will justify and says, well, it was okay that you did that. And one of the examples of that would be uh, a bar scene where someone comes into the bar and uh, the barkeep says, uh, what will you have? And the guy says, nothing or just a glass of water and one of the guys who was sitting at the bar one of the drunks will then come and say oh i'll buy you a drink yeah I'll come let's drink together in other words if this new guy that comes into the bar is not drinking that devalues the drinking of this other guy and he wants this guy to drink which will help justify the fact that he's drinking mm-hmm all right. If you can recognize it, we do that. That's a big example of it. But we do that on a momentary, momentary basis with people all the time. Yeah. And so now we can recognize that we have actually two jobs to do with the Dhamma. And that uh, we can introduce that with a sutta. And the name of the sutta is the half sutta in the, in the Samyutta Nikaya. And the Hat Sutta is a story of where the uh, Ananda came to the Buddha and told him about uh, um, something that Sariputta had said, that friendship is half the Dhamma. About half your practice is to be friends. And the Buddha said to Ananda, oh no, friendship is not half the Dhamma, it's the whole Dhamma. Then, in fact, what we can look at is the two halves that we're speaking about here is the first half of the Dhamma is straightening out our inside, which means making friends with ourselves on the inside, including making friends with our darkness, to making friends with our confusion, making friends with our doubts so that we can inspect it and, and see it clearly and begin to see that there is generally a dialogue or an argument between two parts of the mind and those uh, those two are uh, the two parts of the mind in this argument can be kind of summed up as uh, setting some rule or standard. Yeah. And then the, the the other part of the mind says, 
oh, I don't want to do that or that's too much work. OK, an example of that is a guy watching the YouTube and he says you ought to be meditating. And then he says, no, I don't want to meditate. I want to watch the video. And then the next thought will come. You ought to be meditating right now. Right? Yeah. And so that's that internal dialogue, that's that fight. And the resolution to that would be when that thought comes, you ought to be meditating right now. The answer is, oh, yeah, yeah, I can do. Uh, so that thought then is now unified into the actual practice. But normally we're in a state of arguments with ourselves about should I do this or should I do that or should I not do this or that? And this is one of the reasons why we stay confused or in doubt about things. Yeah, I, 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 a lot. yeah. about in, this internal argument. So the first thing that we have to do is to make friends on the inside. So that we are dispelling that argument that we have and we become unified and whole. Now the other side of that friendship, when we make friends on the inside, we recognize that that same dialogue that we have in our mind is also the same dialogue as people have among each other, but one's going to take one position and the other is going to take the other position. You ought to be doing that. You ought to go on a diet. No, I don't want to go on a diet. You ought to go vote. No, I don't want to go vote. Yeah. All right. Okay, so all of this kind of stuff is happening there in this dialogue. And the, the answer to that is, is that if we can make friends on the inside, now our duty to the Dhamma is being friends with the outside. So that means now we can use that inverse square law to our advantage because we can now add joy when somebody comes and says oh i'm so angry at that bank because they did that this that and the other thing or because they charged me this money you can come back with well that fee is just general i mean banks charge those kind of fees there's no problem with that i could pay that fee easily enough and big smile and that'll give him a different view of it because he thought that the bank had intentionally harmed him but now he sees that other people have that same bank do the same thing to them, but they didn't see it as harming them. Mm -hmm. So he's helping other people to change their view. So they be able to change their view from an unhappy one to a happy one and lighten up or maybe not even change their view about the bank. Mm -hmm. Just but to change their view about the moment. Yeah. Because when they're angry at the bank, the bank's already in the past. Let's get them happy in the moment. Yeah. Yeah, and I, uh, I feel like I naturally want to do that when I'm feeling um, satisfied. I want other people, I guess, to be. To be right. That that's a wholesome thing to do is to spread satisfaction. And it's an own wholesome thing to do to spread dissatisfaction. So people having a pity party, miserable, or people who are angry or uptight or afraid, they can greatly benefit from your satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. When you say, oh, I'm satisfied with the bank. That's okay, no problem. Then that'll help give them a new perspective. Mm -hmm. And doing it over and over and over again begins to make the weight of their old ideas less and less. And you can certainly, I mean, sometimes when it's really hard, it'll take 10 or 15 minutes to cheer somebody up. But generally, it doesn't. Generally, within a minute, you can get somebody out of their misery and cheer yeah. them up. Yeah, 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 of course. But the danger is with the ordinary mind, when they come and spread their unhappiness, their misery, their anger, or their suffering, their intention is to get you to feel the same way. And that happens most of the time. Yeah, yeah I do feel that um, quite uh, often when I work with my uh, clients, because I, I work in a, in a gym, so I'm a personal trainer. Uh -huh. uh, so sometimes I, uh, you know, speak with people about their, uh, about their, you know, their life and stuff. And um, and I, 
when I when I'm uh, with someone really uh, negative or depressed or something like this, it's um I felt really hard to to keep the my energy and happiness level up while mm-hmm. I listen to their misery. <laughs> ah, exactly <laughs> so. But um, well, there's two things with that. One is is to recognize that new people come to the gym. Joining a gym is a kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. And coming to the gym and paying the fees and then coming to the gym and coming to the gym is actually a big deal. That's different than just mom on the couch just complaining about this, that, or the other thing. Which means that when somebody joins a gym, you can pretty well decide or understand that they had a whole lot of unhappiness, a whole lot of misery in their life. And so they're coming into the gym miserable, thinking that they now have to work out that misery with the iron. Mm-hmm. And all and, and that the and the working out misery with uh with pumping iron is just going to make one more miserable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this is where you as a trainer comes in. You're the one who has to make this this switch in their mind. And congratulations, you're in a really good place to do that. Mm-hmm. All right, so that you can recognize that you um, are going to be working with these people that come in miserable. You didn't know that when you took this job, but now that you're taking this job, you recognize that a lot of people come to the gym because they're already miserable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and, what they need at first, so I, I understand. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And so the way that you can handle that is by giving them encouragement in the sense that, oh, yeah, now that you're in the gym, the gym itself will just rub off on you and you can begin to feel good. Actually, it's your attitude that's rubbing off on them, but you can say it in the sense of the gym. The gym is just a good place for you to be. Yeah. So you could feel comfortable and, and um, uh, successful here. Mm-hmm. Also, when those people come in, they're kind of in a hurry to get rid of that misery, which means that they don't go for the easy weights. They go for the heavy things. So people wind up overdoing it. Yeah, we, some of them. We do that on, an, uh, on a regular basis in almost all of our lives. We overcompensate, we overreact and whatnot like that. So as a gym instructor, your job then or weightlifting uh, coach is uh, or whatever they're doing is to make sure that they're starting at the level that they're at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you already know this. We're just going through about it. Why it's so important psychologically. Mm. Okay, not just because that's the right way to do it, but this is the only way that we're going to get them out of their misery. That in fact, there's a side issue with that, and that is, is that normally when people join a gym, they have to sign a year long contract. Yeah. And then they come and they only do the gym one or two weeks or a month. Then they don't keep coming. If everybody came and came and came for the whole year, then the gym wouldn't be able to have so much membership. Yeah, it's yeah, it's uh, they depend on the on that. Okay, so that's part of your model. Mm-hmm. In that regard, you don't have to feel bad because somebody doesn't come back to the gym. In a way, what you can say is is that they got what they came for. And if they're coming because they're miserable, then it's, they're not coming for weights and weightlifting and getting stronger. If that guy, he's going to stay in the gym anyway. Mm-hmm. No, they came because they were feeling bad. So now your job as a counselor is to help them to feel good. Yeah. Yeah, just make them have fun and change their mind. Uh, for Help them clean their mind with your clean mind. This is also that quality of the friendship. This is the Dhamma. And so another way of talking about it, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talked about this quite a lot in the sense of our duty to the Dhamma. And what our duty to the Dhamma is, is to spread friendship. That's our duty to the Dhamma. The people, there's enough enemies out there already. What the world needs now is more friendship. 
And it's our duty to spread friendship, not necessarily spreading meditation techniques, but if somebody gets interested in that. Yeah, I do exactly like that. Uh-huh. Then you can add that to it. But even those who are not interested, they're just interested in weight weightlifting. But you can actually share Dharma with them by telling them things like, take it easy, slow down, you're doing a good job, and start adding all of those wholesome thoughts. Mm, nurture them, right? To the training. Okay, yeah. That, but you already know a lot of this, so I'm just reinforcing it and giving you a different perspective for it. Because any successful trainer is already doing these kind of things anyway. Yeah, I mean, you eventually come to uh, understand that uh, this is what works. I mean, people would, would keep coming even from a, a business standpoint. They would keep coming if uh, they are having fun and uh, a good time and results, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, that's something that you could also understand, maybe not necessarily for a weightlifting coach, but a life coach or um, a trainer like that. People kind of get the attitude that a life coach or a trainer should already have his own mind kind of straightened out, that they're not really coming to get their muscles pumped up. They're there to get their mental muscles pumped up. Mm -hmm. That's the underlying thing is that they want to feel better about themselves. That's what I do. Uh, I tell them that uh, we're going to work on the mental side too, because what they want is not only the results, but uh, to feel good, right? And mm -hmm. really, they really understand that. They're like, yeah, right. <laughs> I want to feel proud uh -huh. of myself and good in my body. And, and they, they're pretty open to, to work on that side too. Excellent. So that means now that we can actually spread our joy. We can spread our satisfaction with other people, even though they will try to cling to their old dissatisfaction. If we keep doing it and keep giving them new ones and keep giving them new ones, it will overtake. I had one student, by the way, who said that his dad um, really hated some politician and he watched Fox News in the United States and got angry and got more angry. I mean, he's watching it uh, and the son uh, said that I can't work with my dad, that he's just so angry. And so I've got a little Dama and I try to go with my little Dama, but he's so angry about the television and whatnot like that, that, that uh, this, uh, uh, our Dharma friend, the son, didn't want to deal with his dad. He wanted to escape, to get away from him. But the question would be that when he does escape and get away from his dad, can he build back his satisfaction again? Because if he builds it up again, then he can come back to the dad again. May not happen on one conversation. It may not be like a 20 minute conversation. It may be a five minute conversation or let us say a 20 minute conversation that took four months, five minutes at a time. Yeah, working uh, slowly too. Right, working at it very slowly, but you keep coming back with the joy. You keep coming back in that case to dad. Dad, we got better things to watch on television than Fox News. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and so this is how we can work with people also is to recognize that some things are going to take time and that's okay. Yeah. There's no reason for you to be in a hurry because if you're in a hurry to pick somebody else and they're sluggish about getting fixed, then you're dissatisfied with your own progress. Going to get that's not going then, to... then, uh, <laughs> then I'm going to be mean to them and stuff. So, yeah. Right, so we have to keep remembering that our satisfaction comes first. Mm -hmm. We have to get the mind in that state of satisfaction. And you've already begun to understand that that's not a difficult thing to do. The yeah. more we practice it, the easier it is to get into a state of satisfaction. It's like um, building a momentum, right? Precisely so, uh, so. I can increase it uh, more and more. 
I mean, it feels like coming from my chest and increasing, but sometimes I, I forget. <laughs> so it just, uh, you know, uh, like. Ah, but even though we do forget and we go down, when we start in the satisfaction, we don't have to start completely all over again. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. easier to call back. I mean. Mm -hmm. That uh, in the military and sometimes in prisons, they'll do things like giving the uh, uh, the new recruit the job of digging a hole. Well, after he gets the hole dig, now the uh, the officer comes and says, you dug it in the wrong place, fill that hole up, and now dig a hole where you were piling the dirt, okay? Well, the thing of it is, is that after a time, when you're digging that hole, the, the dirt now is loose. It's easy to dig it up because the dirt you put back on it doesn't get settled in. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's the way about the satisfaction, too, that yeah, you can lose it uh, completely, but it's easy enough to dig it back up. It's like a habit uh, forming. You're beginning to form the habit of satisfaction. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and so you can think of it like this, that this um, is a, an analogy. The think of your Dhamma practice or satisfaction itself is like a seed. And if that seed is nurtured, if it's given sunlight, if it's given warmth and nourishment, then that seed will sprout and it will grow into a tree. And in the next generation, you'll have more and more trees and soon a forest. Mm -hmm. The average meditator has that seed and he wants the forest. Yeah. And so he's trying to cut the seed open to find the forest on the inside. Mm -hmm. Rather than recognizing it's just a seed. So how that happens with with some is, is that um, they will say, yeah, well, I have joy, but it's not enough joy. I want more joy. Or yeah, this, yeah I, I am satisfied, but not very much. I want more satisfaction. OK, <laughs> that's actually being dissatisfied with our satisfaction yeah, yeah. that's a, that's an old habit that we have we have to be careful about that so that we can make sure that i am satisfied even with a little bit of satisfaction this is okay yeah it's not perfect nothing is ever going to be perfect the question is is it satisfying yeah i feel like two uh two kind of thoughts I and also thoughts that I encountered that I uh, encountered are um, I are that uh, like this satisfaction is not enough and also that I am not good enough I am not doing uh, you know uh, uh, enough effort or good enough that was uh, something I really uh, find out a lot uh, a recurring pattern and um, what would be some uh, except I'm good enough I guess what are, would be some good way to deal with this? Mm -hmm. Yes, you're already there. That's um, in Zen. That's what the um, the old patriarch will tell his intermediate students is, is that you're already enlightened. Just sit, Zanzan. Just sit without trying to get something like enlightenment. Recognizing that when you're just sitting and satisfied, you're already light enough. The enlightenment is a process. We have to practice being enlightened rather than practicing being heavy, wanting something we don't have. Hmm. So that's the way that we practice is just a little satisfaction, just a little dabble, do you, is a way that can be said. And also recognize that things are up and down. We're on cycles. If we are in a cycle, in the sense of here, and we and we find ourselves here, and then we find ourselves here, we don't like it so much because of all of that change. But if we can go back and say, oh, I see the cycle. Things go up, but things go down. Sometimes I feel bad. Sometimes I feel good. Sometimes there's satisfaction. Sometimes there's not satisfaction. And now I can become satisfied with the cycling. Mm -hmm. 
that it's okay that sometimes the darkness comes. Sometimes uh, we feel bad. That's all right because I can see it and give it value. And by doing that, I can become even satisfied with that. And that makes it very easy to come out of it. But if you've got to get out of it because you hate it, now it's a struggle. So instead of hating it, um, it's kind of just watching it, something like this. Right. Well, not just watching it, but making friends with it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Let it be your teacher. Let it be your guide. But that's the funny thing, that when we hide from our mistakes and we don't uh, want people, other people to know that we've made a fupa or um, whatever, that we hide from it, we lie about it, we don't recognize it, and because of that, we don't learn anything. Mm -hmm. But if we can see it, <clears throat> make friends with it, recognize what it is, now by becoming satisfied with it, we can actually see it correctly and recognize that, oh, that's kind of painful to do that. And now we can grow. Now we can change. Now that we really see what it is and see that in before, the reason that we do everything is because we get some sort of gratification out of it. There's always gratification. The Buddha talks about it like that and uses that word, gratification. In other words, we get some sort of joy out of it. Yeah. But we don't see the dangers in it. And we can see that many places in the sense of eating the wrong kind of foods or pastry, being angry. People who are angry, when they're angry, they like feeling angry. They like feeling tough and powerful because feeling angry is a much, uh, let us say, more likable feeling than feeling afraid. And so when we are afraid, many people will cower in fear and want to run away, but it is it feels better to fight rather than flight. So that what we're doing there is we're choosing anger over fear because we're getting the gratification. If we're just fairly afraid and running away, then that means that we've lost for sure whether we get caught or not. But if we can stand and fight, we have a chance to win. And so we always take gratification in being angry as part of our genes. Yeah. It's really, really deep, this anger that we have as human beings. Um, and that uh, you can see the dogs when they're in a fight, they're really, really angry. And when their dog is really angry, he is viciously um, reaching out and he doesn't really care much about what he bites so long as he's biting something. That's why it's a very bad idea for a human to walk into a dog fight trying to stop the fight. That human is going to get bitten by one of the dogs. Either he, even his own dog will bite him because he's uh, in the wrong place. So this is another way of, of looking at it is, is that when we are angry, we're blind. We cannot see straight. Yeah. It's dangerous to be angry. And when we can see the danger in being angry, when we can see that we don't always get our way, in fact, we're much less likely to get our way when we're angry. Yeah. And we can see the danger in the anger. Now we can plot our escape by saying, OK, I'm going to be monitoring. I'm going to not let myself get angry. And also you, you kind of uh, know that you are having an awesome thoughts when you get uh, bad feelings. So it's kind of a, a good thing that you that you feel bad. So you I, I've been using this also sometimes like when I feel bad, I'm like, oh, great. Now I know that I was having an awesome thoughts <laughs> uh -huh. kind of turn it around a little bit. Exactly correct. That's exactly correct practices is to see these things. And then we take the right effort to turn them around. So congratulations, you're progressing. Thank Glad you. Glad to see that. A lot of people will practice meditation, but they're trying to do it to get something out of it. And because of that, their, their uh, practice is very slow. 
when when people practice this way according to the Buddha of throwing these unwholesome thoughts out and getting ourselves in as quickly as possible, like immediately into a state of satisfaction, that's when things begin to move. Mm. You make progress. That seed of satisfaction will grow. And and sometimes you come to the point of, oh, this is so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, things are really, really nice. That means that the satisfaction level is really high. Yeah. So it's a continuum and it's a process that if we start with just satisfaction itself and let that grow, it will grow. But if we are dissatisfied with our satisfaction, then guess which way it's going to grow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the first step uh, of the 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 method you you teach the process uh, i guess it's to switch right from uh, being unsatisfied and looking to meditate from already being satisfied and then play with some i guess new toys that you have or right. like this right right when you say the method that i teach i kind of gotta accept that but when people say your technique yeah, yeah. i say sorry it's <laughs> not mine That's that why there is too much obvious evidence that this is not mine, that this was a discovery that I made, but I had people to help me to make that discovery. Hmm. And that uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and Achan Po for sure were giving me that kind of encouragement that I had never gotten from any other meditation teacher. But then uh, as uh, the sutras became available, see, in the 1980s uh, in Thailand, English translations of the sutras just didn't exist. But uh, by 1995, there was a translation of the Majjhima Nikaya available, as well as the old Pali uh, text society's version. But in modern times now, the Dhamma, the sutras are available on the Internet. And so uh, what I'm saying now is, is that I have gone to various suttas and recognized that this changing the mind from an unwholesome to a wholesome state is all over the suttas. There's dozens of suttas that talk about this. Number 39 talks about the hindrances and what the mind is like when it's free from the hindrances, which we'll talk about. In uh, sutta number 19, it talks about a cowherd who has to get the cows through the the town, but once they get them out of town, then the cow herd can relax. And what that means is when he's going through the village, it's like the cows will go into an unwholesome place and he's got to whack them. And so the Buddha teaches us to whack our mind with that phrase of, aha, I see you, Mm. which is a friendly thing to say rather than, oh no, here it comes again, which means now we don't like our darkness. So now we got two darknesses. But if we see the darknesses, hello, darkness, my old friend, I've seen you before, <laughs> here you come again. Then that attitude can keep us going in that direction. And this is the teaching of the Buddha, as well as in the Anapanasatta Sutta about gladdening the mind to change it from an unwholesome to a wholesome state. It feels also like a unconditional love, right? Because I have to love, like, even the this part. Absolutely. Of Unconditional love. I've heard that phrase long ago. I haven't heard it recently. But we can use other words that tell exactly the same story, and that is nurturing. To nurture the mind and to nurture ourselves, congratulate ourselves, and, and uh, 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 recognize that we're doing things okay, as opposed to the critical mind. The critical mind is what we're taught in school. Uh, this is good, that's better, this is best, that's worse, this is bad, and all of these comparisons. And so now we're comparing ourselves inside of our own mind. This is what we mean by the rules and the standards. Am I doing what I'm supposed to do or not? And then we can fuss at ourselves, no, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. And that's that war that we have inside. That's that uh, unwholesome dialogue that we have. And so the nurturing, or as you're saying, and I really like that, unconditional love because we're not conditioning things as good or bad. 
-hmm. We're not putting that condition on it. We're just saying it's like a, a very brand new born baby that uh, what they talk about is uh, the bonding between the mom and the child. When she, when the child is cleaned up after the birth and presented to the mom, all the women and everyone in the maternity ward, they want to be in there to see that bonding moment because it's so gushy and everybody cries with joy and it's so nice. And what that means is, is that that baby, regardless of what state it's in, is acceptable. Yeah. It's acceptable. We'll take it. It's nurtured. Okay. When a child is one or two days old, it doesn't matter what the child does. Mom will do what she can to give the child what it needs and nurtures it. But by the time the child is five or six years old, now mom wants to put that kid to work. You do your ABCs. You go clean your room. You do what you're told to do. Right. And there comes that critical minded stuff that now we pick up. So in the beginning, we were nurtured and then we were critical. And now we've got years and years and years of all that criticism yeah. with that nurturing way deep dark in our past. Now we're going to go revisit that old nurturing, that old unconditional love that we felt when we were babies and begin to apply that to ourselves now to mm -hmm. really have that not just friendship, but a literally bonding so that the mind becomes unified and whole, and it does so through the nurturing. Mm -hmm. So really nurture yourself. Everything is really okay. And we can do that with language, but eventually we do it with just the feeling of being satisfied, which does not have a, a voice to it. Yeah, yeah, just uh, create the There's feeling. no words, it's just a feeling. And the feeling is if we could put a voice to it, it would be the voice of, Oh. <laughs> it yeah. would be a falling tone in from the uh, from the high frequency down to an easy low frequency. And so that would be what we're practicing. And the entire practice of Anapanasati is just practicing moving from one level of uh, agitation to a level of less agitation and more peace and quiet to even deeper level of peace and quiet, to an even deeper level of stability. This is also part of the satisfaction. If you can, if you're dissatisfied with all the turbulence and you can bring it down to a little bit of uh, less turbulence, then we can become satisfied with that. And as we become satisfied with more and more, there's less and less turbulence. Yeah. Can, I I once had an experience where I uh, I was doing this, but and I was not uh, you know applying. Actually, I was not aware of your method, but I was doing this like uh, trying to to have the best feeling ever and and always choose good thoughts and you know visualize good stuff and stuff. And People uh, come up with that on their own. Why didn't you keep doing that? I don't know. Yeah, why did you forget <laughs> to do it? <laughs> I, lost. And I was like, oh, I lost it. And that's uh, just <laughs> and uh, it was very, very stable place. Like I would see people crying and stuff and it wouldn't affect me at all. And it was very interesting. Like even um, what I would uh, usually uh, see as other people uh, opinion. You know, be afraid of the judgment or like, oh, there's mm -hmm. this about me. I was uh, realizing that all this was in my mind and I could, um, if I want, not give any meaning. It was just, you know, one big feeling of uh, being happy <laughs> and satisfied. Yes, in fact, that's a, you, you gave the correct answer. In fact, that even though as a child or a young man, you were able to figure out that all I have to do is just cheer myself up. You were still populated around with a whole lot of people that weren't doing that. Mm. This is what we call in in uh, uh, the Buddha Dhamma. We we call that the Sangha, which is the triple gem. You've heard of the word the triple gem. Buddham, Buddham, Dhammam, and Sangham are the Sangha. And that means then that if you are practicing joyful, gladdening the mind and uh, satisfaction and other people around you are practicing joyful, gladdening satisfaction, 
then you help each other. This is why we want to promote the saga. This is what the temple or the Wat in Thailand is all about. It's a place for you to go to get away from unwholesome thinking people and get into a vicinity of people who are thinking wholesomely. This was the value that I got from being around Achan Po and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Even though Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was the main teacher, most of the teachings that I got was from Achan Po because I was around him a lot. Yeah, that rubs off, right? <laughs> and so this is why we promote Sangha on the internet, is let's get some friends who are practicing the same thing so that we can help each other remember to practice. Because that old unwholesome th thought process is very common and everybody's doing it. Everybody's judging. Everybody is comparing. Everybody is conditionally loving. Yeah, yeah. And now we need to practice going around loving unconditionally. Everything is satisfactory. Everything is nurturing. And so this is the value of the Sangha. And it's right up there. I mean, this is the big, he uh, they talk about taking refuge in the triple gem. And yet Western Buddhism only wants to take refuge in part of the triple gem. Maybe just the, the uh, those who do just the Buddha are actually in a state of worship. That's they make it into a religion. Mm. And, but most of them like are in, uh, Buddhism is all about meditation and then they're all in the Dhamma. No, the Buddha says that the, that the whole practice is about Sangha, friendship. Having friendship within your own mind and then having friendship with others. That's the real teaching of the Buddha, is friendship. Surprisingly enough, that's very close to the teachings of Jesus also, but Christianity has just missed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because they're all into um, the um, the worship, the religion, the magical stuff. They don't have much practice. And then when it comes to they, they promote fellowship and they talk about fellowship, but only when they people believe what they believe. Hmm. In other words, two Christians will have a community and come uh, together until they disagree on some point of Christianity. And now they're ready to go to war. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. fighting over the same God. Yeah, it's been distorted. <laughs> and so uh, uh, all the religions actually have the very best of it at the at the center. But most of the religions don't ever go anywhere near that center, that friendship. They stay at the periphery of our magical beliefs about common machines and hells and heavens and deities and trinities and all of this kind of stuff that we've got no evidence for. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. no evidence for any of that. So why does that all become so important when in fact the real teachings of the Buddha, the real teachings of Jesus is being friends. Become friends with ourselves, become friends with the people around us. So it's not my teaching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <It's> not mine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This is well known and well documented, but not in our society well practiced. Mm -hmm. And so congratulations for beginning a practice. You're going to get great benefit, great value out of continuing to practice being wholesome, practice being satisfied. I'm sure. <laughs> I'll keep doing this. Yeah. Well, do you have anything else that we want to talk about or shall we finish this now? I think that we've gotten a very, very good foundation for um, this issue of friendship so that you can yeah. gain your own friendship in your mind and then you can work with the people uh, in your employment. You'll become 100% excellent coach. I'm sure of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I guess um, that was good. It helped me uh, get some encouragement and I'll keep doing, uh, keep uh, practicing this. Uh, and uh, do you think there is some suttas or maybe some material that could be interesting for me to to, to check out? 
Yes, I highly recommend reading first off Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Yeah, he has and a... you could get his stuff just by Googling Buddha Dasa and okay. start looking. OK, because there is a huge, huge um, group. And when I say huge, we're talking about millions of people here in Thailand that are dedicated to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Most of them are doing their stuff in the Thai language, but there is quite a lot of stuff that's been translated also into English. Mm -hmm. And so that stuff is available on the website, as well as many other Buddhist places have some of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's stuff. So there's actually quite a lot of wealth in there. And the kinds of things that I would first off recommend that you read, the first one would be the ABCs of Buddhism. Okay. ABCs of Buddhism. The next one is Handbook for Mankind. Mm -hmm. You can actually hear that friendship coming in there with that handbook for mankind. Yeah, that men should be kind to other men. <laughs> 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 and the third one would be. Um, hunger and happiness would be a good one to read. All of these are very short. These are not thousand page novels. These are all very short 50 to 100 pages. Efficient. <laughs> okay. Okay. So yeah. those are the things that I would recommend. And then there's naturally all kinds of other stuff. Mm -hmm. I'll start with this and <laughs> let yeah. you know. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thank you for calling. Thank this you. Very much. Really nice conversation. I really liked it. So we'll see you soon. Me too. See you there, Arthur. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.